So we're going to calculate the brutal facts together. The first is you've got to know what the, the population for an area is. And you can commonly find this on Wikipedia or you know, your local government website. Um, we're going to calculate for the state of Florida. There's 20 million people in the state of Florida. And as far as now we need to calculate the lostness. So uh, finding the percentage of lostness, usually our local Baptist Association or, or George Barna are typically a good place for reliable stats. So we're at about 90% of lostness in the state of Florida, which means there are 18 million lost people who are far from God. This means that in the state of Florida, there are 18 million people who, if they were to die today, would perish into an eternity in hell. How does that sit with you? Whose responsibility is it to reach these 18 million people? That's right. It's our responsibility. We are his ambassadors that have been placed here. Does this number seem a bit overwhelming or daunting? Yeah. Well, it would probably help if we could see an example of reaching this many people from the Scriptures. So go ahead and turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 19, verses 8 to 10. We'll read this together. It reads, And he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So what we see happening in Acts 19 is Paul is in Ephesus is that every resident of Asia, and this is anywhere from 8 to 15 million estimated people, heard the gospel in two years. Isn't that incredible? Um, this isn't a sign of things to come, so I'll try and do better and not quit in the middle here. Let me give you let me what he was starting to say, and, and let me give you some idea before I get started with my message that of what he what he was saying and put it in a more local setting. Ken and I sat down and we were kind of figuring out what the population in a five mile radius of this church is. And we figured the population had to be somewhere around 100,000. And of that, they, the, the figures that we found that 96% of the people in that, that radius 
are unchurched. That means that 96,000 of the people in that radius are unchurched. And if we shot for a target of 10%, that would mean we'd try to save 9,600 of those people. But what it would take is 10% of the laborers, which would be another 960 people to help us do that. It would take um, new churches. If we had new churches of about 50, 50 members, it would be 192 churches. And if we put two leaders in each of that, those churches, it would be 384 people. That's Plainfield. You want to hear Chicago? <laughs> Eight million people population lost 96%, which would make 7,680,000 people. The target of 10% to try and save that would be 768,000 people. The laborers needed would be 7,680. 7, New churches of 50 or more, we would have to have 1,536, which means 3,072 leaders. So buckle up, Crosswinds, we got work to do right now. So good morning. Welcome to Crosswinds Church. It is good to be back. I do recognize most of the faces in the room, some I do not. But um, if you've already forgotten who I am or you don't know, my name is Kim. I held the title of ministry coach here at Crosswinds in Plainfield. But six months ago, I stood about right in this same place, and I got married to a very beautiful woman from West Virginia who is sitting over here right now. And she whisked me off to live with her there. And now I am the chief discipler of our Wilkinson Street campus in, in Huntington, West Virginia. <laughs> I'm sorry, I said that wrong. I said it with my Illinois accent. It's Huntington, West Virginia. So I have to get it right. I'm working on my accent right now. So it was about three and a half years ago that um, Pastor Ken pulled me aside after a Wednesday noon Bible study group, the men's group that we have here. And he told me that he wanted to change the culture of our church. And he said, I could use your help. So he and I sat down and we worked through some things and we came up with a list of values that we thought would lead us in the correct direction. And I know many of you have heard these before, but I'm going to repeat them again because they always bear repeating. So there were six um, original values that we had, but Pastor Ken always bugged me about the fact that we needed a, a biblically lucky number seven. So recently we put a seventh one in there, but here they are. Encouragement. Being specific and generous in our praise and celebrating as a community and individually when people do well. Positive feedback. Celebrating victories and identifying areas for constant improvement of our lives and his mission. Redemption, creating a grace-filled environment where the broken become whole again and the old becomes new through an atmosphere of forgiveness and hope through Jesus Christ. Creative communication, finding innovative ways to communicate the gospel in relevant ways to each generation, gender, personality, style, and people group. A healthy community. We seek to be people who are honest about our strengths and weaknesses. We seek to excel in the gifts grace to each of us. We celebrate the diversity of the gifts that complement us and lead to a healthy, growing church family. Our latest, or our newest, addition to the, to the values, a people committed to serve, 
dedicated to serving God daily with our prayers, time, money, and abilities to demonstrate his goodness, love for one another, and love for those we seek to reach with the gospel. And the final one that I'd like to read is the one I want to talk about the most today, and that's training. We seek to create a leadership pipeline to build up people from the youngest to the oldest to make disciples who then train other disciples to build others who do the same. So I came in this week to attend the uh, Four Fields Intensive Training, and I think that Cleone and Nigel would agree with me, intensive is probably a great description of what we went through this week. Um, it was like seeing a dump truck load, unloaded on top of you, and, and then you came back the next day for more. But um, it was a great workshop, and I'm looking forward to taking some of it back to West Virginia with me to use it and talk to some other people about it. But as far as Crosswinds is concerned, discipling for us started about three and a half years ago when Ken and I started to talk about the values that I just read earlier. PK found, um, through our friends at uh, Family Church in South Florida, a hands-on training module that he brought back home and he, he started to share it with all of us in little groups. I think Jeremy and Michael were in the very first group. I was in like the third or fourth. Mike was down the line somewhere. I know that Danielle and Chris Cochera went through the, the training. And then we took it from there and we moved it on to others. Jeremy brought two or three people through, I know. Um, I brought my friend Barry through it. So we've all been through the training. Chris, I, I think we need to point out that Chris Cochera brought our friend Troy here through that training. And I want to tell you that if there's a person who really ate it up and became a child of God and went on fire, then I have to point to Troy. Troy has gone from this very quiet young man sitting in our Wednesday group to the guy that's on fire for Jesus. And he spread the three circles everywhere to his family, friends, and everybody who will listen. And in fact, we're, yeah. In fact, we're getting to the point where we point at him and say, I want to be like him. So, so I think it's good. Um, but, you know, and, and, and after we, you know, you know, we not only did the training, but we took it out and we put it to use. We started to go out like the, the di first disciples were asked, come follow me and I'll teach you to fish for men. So we went out fishing. We went out trying to find people who weren't close to God and tried to start talking with them. Ken and I met quite regularly at Crema. In fact, it seemed like every time I talked to Ken, he was at Crema, I began to think his office was there. And um, I understand there's a, 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 a little plaque in the corner now that says Ken's Christian Corner. So it's, <laughs> it, you know, it's, so it works. Barry and I met at the Panera Bread, and, and there were many wait staff that were asked if they needed prayer, and they were prayed for. And, um, but now, you know, I'm in West Virginia, and I'm more on my own, and it seems just a little different to me. Yes, I still go to the Panera Bread, the local Panera Bread, and I go to the Jolly Pirate Donut Shop, which has my favorite peanut donuts there. But my favorite place to fish is to go to work with my wife. Trish works for the Kentucky Organ Donation Affiliates, CODA for short. Trish is my superhero. 
She saves lives. Did you know that one organ donor can save as many as eight lives? And that there are over 100,000 people on the waiting list to receive an organ? I know it was just a cheap plug for organ donation, but in the state of Illinois, if you, if you want to be an organ donor, contact the Secretary of State's office. But Trish is the liaison to three of the large hospitals in our local area. And she goes in to make sure that they have and they follow the policies and procedures for this very highly regulated activity. And then she does some training, but she will also follow up with potential organ donors who are in critical condition, again, to make sure that the policies and procedures are being followed and that also they're being treated with dignity and respect. So occasionally, when she goes to these hospitals, I will tag along with her. And I believe there is a picture right there. That, that's me. I'm sitting at the hospital in Ashland, Kentucky, and I have a little sign on my computer that says, I'm praying for you. And I will, I will sit in the, in the cafeteria until Trish comes and fetches me out. And I have to admit, the fishing in West Virginia for me has not been as good as I had hoped, but I'm trying to work through those details. But the upside of that is when I'm not fishing or nobody's around, I can read in my Bible. And so one day, I was reading in Luke 14, 25 through 27. The cost of being a disciple, and it reads, a large, large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning them to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And I thought, wow, that is really harsh. Who can be a disciple? And maybe, maybe just maybe, I've been watching too many police procedurals on TV. You know, Criminal Minds, the FBI series, uh, NCIS, Law and Order, the Chicago series. <laughs> because all of a sudden I found myself sitting there trying to create a profile of what a true disciple would look like. And I mean, as I kept reading and reading, I found probably three dozen verses and my mind was getting filled and I thought I should start this sermon today like they start a Chicago Bulls game. You know, they play that song, dun, 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 dun. You all ready for this? <laughs> but lucky for you, I was able to boil it down to three major characteristics. The first one, disciples are common people and they're not religious deities. Look at the 12 original disciples. Seven were fishermen, one was a tax collector, one was a politician. There's some uncertainty about the other three, but even the apostle Paul was a tent maker. How common is that? You know, and keep in mind it was the religious leaders who actually had Jesus arrested and, and eventually put to death. In 2 Peter 2.9, it tells us that the common folks might be different. Peter, one of the original disciples, says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness 
into the marvelous light. It's through Jesus Christ's victory on the cross that we can come directly to God's presence without, our, without fear. And we have been given the responsibility to bring others to him as well. We join in a priestly work of reconciling God and people. Oh yeah, you, you can probably start to argue me and say, well, Kim, the, the, the disciples had better training. They were with Jesus for three years. But, you know, Jesus was not looking for a resume full of educational degrees or work experience. In fact, we often assume that Jesus' disciples were great men of faith the first time they met Jesus. But they weren't any different than you and I. They had to grow in their faith, just like all believers do. See, your, your, your value doesn't come from being one of God's children. And it, does, it comes from, I'm sorry, it comes from being one of God's children. It's not what you can achieve. In Luke 9.23, he says, Then he said to them all, See, he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. The cross is heavy, but all Jesus is asking you for is a commitment. Which leads me to my second point. Disciples put God as number one, knowing that the working conditions for disciples can be difficult and demanding but know that their reward is in heaven. Back in 2016, I started considering retirement from my career. I was a university administrator for most of my life, and then the last five years, I was a project manager for J.P. Morgan Chase. And I can tell you, wow, there's a lot of questions when you start thinking about retirement. I mean, do I have enough money to retire to live on? Or will I have to take a part-time job, maybe as a Walmart greeter, to supplement my income? And what about health insurance? And what am I going to do with myself? What will be my motivation for getting up in the morning? And not to mention all the health and mortality issues that you face as you reach your later years. I was worried about me, physically, mentally, and spiritually. And then one day I read a quote from an unlikely source for me. Everyone who knows me, even though I spent a lot of time living in Wisconsin, I'm not a Green Bay Packer fan. I am a Chicago Bear fan. And my quote came from Vince Lombardi, the former head coach of the Green Bay Packers from the 1960s. Lombardi said one day that the three most important things to the men in this locker room are their God, their family, and the Green Bay Packers in that order. I realized my priorities were really messed up. In fact, there's a line in a movie called um, A View from the Top. It says, I was placing the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. (laughs) I've practiced it a lot, I can tell you that. (laughs) You know, I thought I had an eye problem. You know, I I, I don't want to talk about my spirituality. I don't want to read the Bible. I'm not comfortable talking to people about the gospel. And then I stopped and discovered it wasn't an eye problem. It was a heart problem that I had. See, God always had a design for my life. And when I followed that design, it worked out tremendously. 
He took a kid with learning disabilities and got him through college. He took a young man in his 20s with severe medical issues and he healed him and then he put him on a better life path. He took that same young man and became his financial advisor that when he did retire, he didn't have to take a part-time job to supplement his income. But you know, there's those other times where you know, God wasn't just, didn't seem to be that important. You know, great job meant more money. means I could have more cool things. I could go buy more cool things. I could take greater vacations. The kids and their activities, my own hobbies and self-interest, they all put God on the back burner. But you know, I discovered that putting God number one was imperative, and it can be rewarding as well. But you know, it's not always easy. I mean, a disciple is someone who, God, who loves God more than anyone else, even family and friends. True disciples trust in God, not in worldly measures. Their security is in heaven, not on earth. They understand the cost of becoming a disciple means you deny yourself, not simply denying yourself certain things, but denying personal control of your own life. It means you take up the cross, which leads to rejection and persecution. It means following him, which means following the example and teachings of Jesus. Go back to Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, read that again, does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And how about the rich young ruler who's in three of the Gospels? I've took my story out of Mark 10, but the rich young ruler came up and asked Jesus, what does it take to have eternal life? And Jesus told him, you need to follow all the commandments, which the young man responded, I've been doing that since I was a little boy. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Do you think Jesus is trying to thin out the herd here? Well, I, I would probably say not really. That's usually not his nature. He just wants us to reconsider our priorities. He wants us to consider the cost of being a disciple, and he wants us to eliminate the excuses. I mean, Jesus isn't really advocating to the disciples. To be disciples, we must actually hate our family and our friends and ourselves. In fact, he criticized the religious leaders for not following the Old Testament command of honoring their parents. But Jesus is using a sharp contrast here to make a point. Instead of using something easily hated like sin to make his point, he chooses the most noble love we could ever find, the love of family. And he wants to show that love for God takes priority over all others, and it should be so strong that that love for others is like hatred by comparison. Think of the rich young ruler. It's about the same thing. Jesus is not implying that we need to follow, to follow him, we need to take a vow of poverty. He just realized that this man's possessions we're his idol, we're his God, and not Jesus. Jesus showed genuine love to the man, even though he knew the man might not follow him. 
but because his love is complete, he gives us changing challenges. And nothing should keep us from following Jesus, but we do need to consider the costs. Luke 14.31 says, What king going to war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Again, Jesus isn't talking about kings and wars. Don't miss the point. He's talking about men and women like you and me. If we plan on becoming one of Jesus' followers, we need to decide early whether we are willing to go the distance to steadfastly love our Savior. He's encouraging those of us that are superficial to either go deeper or just go home. So what are some of these costs? Well, disciples are to love one another. Well, we, we kind of probably know that that's not that easy all the time, right? There's that lazy coworker we got. There's that guy who cut us off in traffic. Sometimes there's your own family. Trish and I have reached a point in life with elderly parents, and we have friends with elderly parents, and the bickering that goes on between children of parents trying to decide what's the best thing to do for the parents can be just devastating at times. We also need to be ready to come and follow. That means get in the word. And we need to go fish, which means to pray and to talk to others about God. We need, to decide, we need to deny our selfish desires in choosing to go our own direction in life without regard to Christ. Our Christian beliefs have caused opposition, persecution, loss of social status, separation from families, and loss of control of our money, time, and our career. And in some cases, in some countries including our own probably, you can be put to death. Following Christ does not mean a trouble-free life. Our ideas or what we want, what we want to do and who we want to be are not evil or wrong. But we need to be willing to give them up to follow God's plan for a perfect life. He's asking you to put everything on the table. Billy Graham once said, salvation is free. But the cost of discipleship is everything we have. We must carefully count the cost of becoming Christ's disciples so that we will firmly hold to the faith and won't be tempted to turn back later, which also will leave us without excuses. Romans 1, 19 and 20 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So, does anybody have an excuse for not believing in God? Well, the obvious answer in the Bible is no. So when the day comes for God to judge your response to him, no excuse will be accepted. And we know that God wants our love as his top priority, but we have choices. Jesus made the first choice to love and to die for us and to invite us to live with him forever. Now we get to make the next choice. We can accept or reject his offer. It's up to us. It's important to take a stand for the Lord. Stop going with what's ever so pleasant and easy. 
because someday we'll discover that we've been following the wrong God. Maybe it's the God of ourselves. My third and final characteristic. Disciples are servants eager to learn with a desire to teach and a willingness to spread the good news. The Apostle Paul wrote to to his young protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. When Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, he was nearing the end of his own life. And when, so, when someone is dying or leaving us, their last words become very important, particularly someone with the stature of, a, of a, the Apostle Paul. And I think we could confidently say that Paul had been faithful to his call. And thus he faced death calmly, knowing that he would be rewarded by Christ. The good news is that heavenly reward is not just for big hitters like Paul. It's for all of us who believe and look forward to Christ's second coming. Hopefully, I hope someday, and I pray someday, that all of us here can share Paul's confident expectation of meeting Christ ourselves. Paul encourages Timothy and us that no matter how difficult the fight seems, we need to pass the gospel on to faithful men who will turn and teach others so that the gospel is preserved for the coming generations. How much do you think that happens that we have a 96% unchurched rate in this city? If the church were to consistently follow that advice, it would expand geometrically as well as well-taught believers would teach others, commission them, and in turn teach others. Our work is not done until new believers are able to make disciples of others. We will discover that it is all worth it when it's time for our eternal, eternal reward. And Paul gave us even a better reason to learn and teach and spread the good news. In Romans 10, 14, and 15, he says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. How cool is that? I mean, how can they call on Jesus if they have not believed? How can they believe in Jesus if they have not heard? How can they hear without someone telling them the good news? And how can anyone explain the gospel unless they are sent? You know, and there's a great example of this in action in the Bible. It's in Acts 8. It's, it's Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Okay? Philip was one of the seven deacons for the food distribution in the early church. He became an evangelist, one of the traveling missionaries. He was a student of the Bible who could explain its meaning clearly and one of the first to obey Jesus' command to take the gospel to all people. And an angel of God came to Philip and sent him on the road between Jerusalem and Gaza for an appointment with an Ethiopian eunuch. And that eunuch was an important official. He was the head of the treasury for the queen of Ethiopia. He was one of the foreigners, 
And Ethiopia, by the way, was a country in, in dire need of hearing the good news. And he was one of the foreigners who had been worshiping in Jerusalem during the festival of the Pentecost. And he probably, given his background, wasn't really welcome there. So he was probably worshiping from a distance. And on his way home, the eunuch was sitting in his chariot reading a book, the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the Isaiah's prophecy was about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And the Spirit told Philip to go stand by the chariot. And Philip literally sprints to that chariot, and he says to the eunuch, he says, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says to him, how am I to understand unless somebody explains it to me? And he invites Philip to sit with him. And as they read the passage from Isaiah together, Philip explained to the eunuch the good news, that even when our sin was, life was so great, God showed his love by sending his son down to earth to serve us and show us what God's love was like in human flesh. But Jesus was despised and he was rejected by men, and later he was nailed to a cross. And he took our sin and shame to that cross, and he paid the penalty of our sin by his death. And he was put in a borrowed tomb, and three days later, he walked out of that tomb alive again. And if we admit our sins, sinful ways, and stop trusting in ourselves and put our trust in Jesus, and when we repent of our sins and we believe that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior and we follow him, we receive, we receive eternal life through Jesus and pursue God's design in all areas of our life. And as they were going down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. And Philip baptized him. If Philip would not have been there to disciple the eunuch that day, how could the eunuch call on Jesus if he had not believed? How could the eunuch believe in Jesus if he had not heard the good news from Philip? How could the eunuch hear without Philip telling him the good news? And how can anyone explain the gospel unless they are sent to disciple like Philip was? How would the eunuch have been baptized and be able to receive the Holy Spirit? It's true. How beautiful are the feet of those who, are, who bring the good news. You know, Philip's effectiveness on, on sharing the gospel with this man from a country in need of knowing the love and mercy of God affected an entire nation. In fact, the church of Ethiopia, which he started, still exists today. That was the power. Now, I know I have talked today about what it takes to be a disciple, but I know that to make a disciple, you need to first be a disciple. And that starts with forming a relationship with Jesus. If you don't have that relationship, we can help you. Talk to Pastor Ken, talk to Jeremy, talk to Mike, talk to me, talk to my friends over at this table. They'll all talk about that. And then just ask anyone in the church or you see that has a close relationship with Jesus. Talk to Troy and ask them how they got started and any guidance they can provide. Being here in church today is a good start. The next step is to start reading the Bible daily. Then find your Philip and ask them to explain it to you so you understand. That's my challenge to you today. 
For those that already have a relationship with Jesus, I challenge you today to become the beautiful feet that carry the good news. Start by finding a Bible verse or a Bible story and read it every day. Maybe one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, um, the woman at the well, Luke 18, which is about praying. One of my go-to books is the book of Galatians. But lately I've been enjoying reading the lesser-known prophets, the last 12 books of the Old Testament, which illustrates the, that God's love and grace for his sinful people, but also warning that a judgment is coming. And when you're comfortable with that verse or story after you've read it for a while, pray that God will put someone in your life that you can share that verse with, preferably someone who is far away from God. And then next week, find another verse or story and then do it all over again. And then do it every week for the rest of the year and then see what happens. We all should strengthen our relationship with Jesus, then preach the good news so the Christian faith can be spread throughout the world. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day of worship and praise to your name. Lord, I thank you for the week that we've had of just learning what it's like to be a disciple. Lord, we thank you for being here with us today. And Lord, we just ask that you guide us and direct us. If we're missing that relationship, Lord, that you teach us what it's all about to, to be a disciple of God. And Lord, that you be with those who are di disciples. And, and Lord, may they be the feet that carry the good news and be the beautiful feet that carry the good news. Lord, we just ask that you be with us as we go out today. Allow us to be able to talk to others about our spirituality and our, our beliefs. And Lord, we thank you for the freedom that you give us to be able to do that. And I just thank you for allowing me to be here today and present this message. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I do want to thank you for the time that you gave me today. Thanks for listening. It's always fun to come back. This is coming back home. And um, I'm going to go stand by the door over there if you want to talk about anything that's troubling your life. If you want prayer, join me. Join someone else if you want to. But um, go out and have a, a good day.